This morning we're looking at the key to seeing God. You talked about building a house, building on foundations. Today, this morning, I would like to bring a key, a key to this house, to looking and seeing and answering one of the greatest questions. How do I see God? Because that's one of the greatest questions. It's one of the greatest questions out there that there is and has ever been. Young guns, you probably hear that in school all the time, and I bet if you go off to a to your college, you're going to hear that challenge all the time. Does God exist? People trying to absolutely prove that he does not exist. They'll come and say, how can we see him? How can we, how can we touch him? Can we interact? Because he interacts still in the world. Actually reminds me of a story of a college student sitting in class and his atheist teacher was bringing such a hard point against this saying, we cannot see God, can we? We cannot go out, reach out and touch God. So thus, God must not exist. Well, the student raised his hand and said, Professor, I have a question. He said, can we see your brain? He said, no, I don't think you can right now. He said, well, then can I touch your brain? He said, no, we established you can't even see it. So how can you touch it? He said, well, then by all the same means, I guess you don't have a brain. That's the same logical point that comes to this. People asking, how can we see God? Well, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 gives us a very simple one-verse explanation of how we can see God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, if you think that verse is simple enough, please tell me, I will sit down and we'll move on. But I think there's a lot to unpack in this verse. There's a lot to pull and see and to come from. This title that you see up there, there is a key to seeing God, and that is true. It is found simply here in this beatitude. The key is simply being pure in heart. But that's the hard part, isn't it? Isn't that the difficult piece of being pure in heart and what that means? This is why I think of all the Beatitudes so far, and I've been working through the Beatitudes with, with Central Mansfield where I'm working now. I think I've come to the conclusion this might be the hardest of the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes are supposed to be a blueprint of Christian living. These are the characteristics that Jesus is looking for in our lives and his people and the kingdom citizens to come forth and say, this is how you know them. This is how you know me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So how do we go about meeting this character type that Jesus is looking for this morning? Well, I think it starts off by defining and saying, what is pure in heart? What does that mean? There's two important words here. There's pure and there's heart. When we look at the word purity, is it a, a literal purity? that I have to be absolutely perfect, I cannot be spoiled or tainted in any sort of way, because that is, if that is the case, I just need to sit down right here, put my hands and my head between my knees and just sob and cry. And I would say there's no point of us coming back to this, to this building ever again. Because I'm not going to make that. I'm never going to be absolutely pure, undefiled, untainted. It's never going to be that way. 
Instead, I think what Jesus is trying to get here at is motive. He's saying it's not a literal purity. It is motive of heart. It's this idea of being unmixed, unspoiled in this kind of way. Think of it, at least in this case, we Americans, we love the idea of purity. We spend about $40 billion a year on the idea of purity and what we put into our bodies. I'm sure if I went over to almost anyone's house, you have a Brita filter of some sort, whether it's in your fridge, a part of your fridge sitting outside somewhere. What is the point of the Brita filter? It is to purify the waters to make it more palatable, put, take the bad things out so you can put in the good, the pure water. I just recently bought an air purifier for my house because we have friends who come over who are allergic to our cats. I want them to come over and not have teary eyes as they're over. We spend lots of money on trying to purify the air that is around us. We spend tons of money on having pure food, encouraging no more GMOs and things like that. One of the most precious materials our country bases itself on is gold, pure gold, 24-karat gold. And that's not something you just find in nature. When you find gold in the ground, it is tainted, it is corrupted, there's mud, there's other things, that's all inside of it. And that refining process is so absolutely difficult. You literally have to melt away all of the impurities to get that absolute pure gold. But I think my favorite thing that we Americans spend money on and chase around is milk. It's milk. When you come and go to the grocery store, you see such a variety of milks. All the way from whole pure milk, there's nothing else, to, to 2%, which makes me ask, what did you take out or what did you add in to not make it pure milk anymore? All the way down to what we call skim milk. And if I may quote one of my favorite TV characters, skim milk is just water that is lying about being milk. <laughs> this is the kind of Christian that Jesus is asking and telling us we cannot be. He says, I cannot be a skim milk Christian. Someone who is proclaiming to be a Christian, a citizen of the kingdom, yet is full and is tainted by the things of the world a skim milk Christian. He says, I, you cannot be a skim milk Christian. If you are that, you are not going to see God. You are not going to know who God truly is, who his people are about, and the kingdom is probably not for you. Is it about letting all these things go? I cannot be a skim milk Christian. This also reminds me of a news story I remember seeing a long time ago. Back in Chicago, in Chicago in about 2006, a news report came out saying that they had to start dyeing the hair of the polar bears because the polar bears were turning green. Whoever thought that polar bears could ever turn green? The environment had gotten so hot and so humid that their fur started turning green from algae, and this is because polar bears' hair is hollow on the inside. It's there to insulate them, to make them feel warmer when it is really cold, but what does hollow hair that gets wet and damp in a human environment do well. It grows algae and turns things green. This still happens in Japan to this day. Every season they have the celebration of the green pandas, or the, sorry, the green polar bears, because they come in and they are dyed by the algae that's there. This is what an impure, impure Christian looks like. It's someone that has to put an extra thing on top 
to hide what they truly are. You cannot be a skim milk Christian. But then he moves into talking about the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, is he talking here about a pure heart, one that is truly innocent, that is just open? What does he mean by heart? Because he's obviously not talking about the organ, because if he is again, there's no chance for me. I know my heart is full of cholesterol and things that clog it up. I bet most of us in here have that thing. If that's the case, it's a literal physical organ, guess, I guess we're done too, and I could sit down and be all sad again. But look at how the Bible describes what heart truly is. If you look over at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15, Matthew 13 and verse 15, Jesus describes the heart here for his people saying, for the heart of this people has become dull with their ears, they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, They would have seen with their eyes, heard with their ears, understood with their heart, and and in return I would heal them. Going back and quoting Isaiah chapter 6. He's looked and says, your heart is controlled by you. My heart is controlled by me and no one else. I should be giving my heart to him, giving my heart to God, but that's my choice of whom I'm giving my heart to. Look over a couple pages to Matthew, to, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 and verses 8 through 9. Again, quoting another passage from Isaiah. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 8, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines these precepts of men. He's saying here that you are given the choice. You're given a choice. I have given you the choice and chance to come and worship me. Your lips, they honor me on the outside, but your hearts, they're so far from me. You've forgotten the purpose of our relationship, what it's supposed to be. You are spoiling it as now undefiled. You are no longer considered pure in my eyes because you have taken what I have asked. You've taken the law, and then you took and added all of these traditions and other teachings as a safeguard, but you have superseded the law with this. And you've ruined what was supposed to be an example for you. A guiding for you to see why you needed something and someone greater, why you needed me. You took the choice and you ran the wrong way with it. Maybe it's more clearly looked at in Mark chapter 12. Look over to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Mark 12 and verse 30. As the scribes have come to him and are challenging him, they ask the question, what commandment is the greatest of all? And Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is but one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. He comes in and shows you what the inner core of man is supposed to be. And the heart is one quarter of it. He says, your heart, your mind, your body, your strength. Maybe put it into another translation idea for us. Maybe our core, our spirit, our thought, and our body. Everything that makes up man is supposed to be given back to God. And the heart is such an important part of this. It is not the physical organ 
when I'm back home and I say heart, most of the time I literally touch and talk about this because the heart is more than just the organ. It is the mindset. It is the motive. It is your nature. It is who you are as a person. Blessed are you who are striving to be like me. In fact, another way to say this beatitude might be blessed are those with an untampered core or maybe blessed are they whose motives are driven by a God-centered life because they will see God. And this is a high mark to reach. It's not an impossible mark to reach, but it is a high one that is a great challenge to us continue to go and grow into. So we see what pure of heart is. I love looking at an application and characters. What does this look like in practice? Well, I love that the Bible gives us these characters, especially Old Testament characters, because it shows who these individuals can look like so we can emulate someone realistic, someone who's not Jesus, who's divine, who seems so far out of reach. God says here, here's some real, real examples, both positives and negatives, of who I'm talking about. I want to begin by looking at David for just a moment, a man literally described after having God's own heart. Think about how he lived his life, of how David could have been pure in heart after God, how he stood as a young man by himself against the giant, with the nation behind him cowering in fear, their great leader who stood head and shoulders above everyone else, cowering in fear in his tent, not willing to come and stand before the other nation and for God? Here stands this young man knowing, I'm probably going to die if I don't have God's help. I am not going to win unless I have God. But yet there he stood, ready to fight, ready to conquer. Or what about his heart when he's being chased by Saul through the wilderness, having multiple attempts made on his life? And when he's given two different opportunities to take Saul's life out of justifiable revenge, what does David say to his men when he is encouraged to do that? He says, how could one raise his hand against the Lord's anointed? You see the heart of David because he's not going to kill this man. It's in God's time to take this justice on Saul. It is not for me to take and mess with and deal with. That is a heart of purity because I know I would be probably up for revenge. You're trying to kill me? I need to take care of this so that I don't die so I can prolong my life. Or maybe about how late in his life after he's been run out of his nation, out of his capital, by his son who literally takes his concubines up on the roof, fornicates with them in the eyes of the entire nation. And when he finds out that his son has been killed... What is his response? Is it great? Can't wait to get home so that I can pick everything back up and keep going. All the joy that my great enemy is dead. That's what his, his generals wanted him to say. But instead he falls on his knees, weeping, saying, Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I could take your place. This is the kind of pure heart that God is looking for. He's not focused on self at all. Focuses on God, focuses on others, even those who proclaim to hate him. His heart and mind is on them. 
There's another great king I want to look at for a moment. Let's look at Hezekiah. Turn over to uh, 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. For those of you who were not here for, two, for when I was here uh, two and a half years ago and could hear me constantly say, this is my favorite of the kings. I love looking at Hezekiah for the examples and brings, things that he brings to us, especially in the beginning of his kingship. The very beginning, in 2 Kings 18, he says, Now it came about the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah. He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense into it. And it was called Nehushtan. And he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandment, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. You see this young man's heart because his father Ahaz was an evil, evil man who sacrificed his own children, the Canaanite god Molech, in a very gruesome and horrible way. Hezekiah looks around and sees the nation is in shambles and he finds the law and he says, what have we done? And he sees, and you see the heart for God that's in him as he goes and sees and tears down everything. He doesn't just remove it. He doesn't just go put it away and hide it away from the presence of God. He utterly destroys all of these things, things and even something that had been a benefit, a boon to the people in time of past. Well, they had turned it and made it something it wasn't. He destroys it absolutely. Purity of heart for the people. And they prospered because of this young man's heart. But I think Jesus has the favorite example for me. Because Jesus describes little children as some of those beautiful things of creation. Look over at Matthew chapter 19 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 14. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 14. He says here, Then some children were brought to him so that he may lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Or look over at Matthew 11. Matthew 11 and verses 25 through 30. Matthew 11 verses 25 through 30. And at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see what Jesus Jesus does here with these little children as he looks and sees and says, how blessed you are. I can only imagine why he says these are very special, why little children are so special. It may have to be because they are brutally honest. Little kids are absolutely brutally honest. I've got a couple back home, and both of them are not afraid to shout out when I say something they like. I find that really encouraging myself. It's always good to hear and see that they are listening. And afterwards... When I'm done, one of those little boys will yell out, all done. <laughs> and I go, yes, sir. yes, Daniel, I'm all done because they are brutally honest. And it brings joy to my heart because he is paying attention. It brings me joy to see that little children can be so brutally honest. I think that's what he expects out of, out of his children in the kingdom, that we are brutally honest with each other. We are open and honest and true that I'm not going to hide myself away from who I am, who I need to be, and I'm willing to call you out and say, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And how can I help you fix that? Or maybe it's because they have unwavering trust. Little children have such unwavering trust. They have to. They're completely helpless. Ever watched a three-year-old try to feed themselves, try to get into the Tupperware that we put their Cheerios in? It's amusing to me to watch them try to do that. Because they can't get it. They can't figure it out. They have unwavering trust that mom and dad are going to take care of them. That they're looking out for their needs, just as I'm supposed to have unwavering trust in Jesus and in God. That he has me and he's going to take care of me. Maybe it's their driven curiosity. They have to know everything. Daniel, who's back with me, his favorite thing to say is, why? It's why. Why this? Why does this work this way? Why are you saying this? this? Why is the preacher taking so long? And he has said that before. They have a driven curiosity to know and to grasp and to take and learn, as we are commanded to do, to grasp and teach and learn what our Heavenly Father wants us to be, who we're trying to be. That's why I become so engrossed in the Sermon on the Mount back home, because this is the blueprints for who we are trying and striving to be. This driven curiosity of what Christians are supposed to be and have. Probably it's because of the undefiled heart. Children have such a beautiful heart. The naivety and the innocence that's there is just glorious. And that's the kind of people we need to be. It's striving to be emulating that of seeing sin, seeing temptation, and saying, No. I have and want someone and something better. No, I know it's pleasing. I know it's fun. Satan, quit presenting it to me in this way. I know you don't need to tempt me anymore. But I'm saying no because I have someone and something greater. I'm behaving like a little child in the eyes of God in all the good and right ways. This is what it looks like in practice. I think this is what being pure in heart looks like in true practice. Not being a skim milk Christian and trying to be like a little child in the eyes of God. But the final question is, how do I see God? 
How do I truly see God? Look at John chapter 1 for just a moment. John chapter 1. In verses 14 through 18, John chapter 1. In verses 14 through 18. John 1, starting in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is only, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth was realized through Jesus Christ. And no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of his Father, he has explained him. How do I see God? Well, first off, it begins by seeing Jesus for who he truly is. I need to see, I must see Jesus for who he really is. Because right now, it feels like, at least in the world, that they are, the world's trying to paint Jesus in a very different light. But you see Jesus really in two different ways. You see the social justice Jesus, who looks and says, that's not fair, that's not right, and you can't behave in this way, but doesn't take any hard stances on anything, doesn't challenge me to change who I really am. He says, no, 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 I will come to you. You get to stay who you are, I will come to you, there's no need to change. That's not the Jesus that I see in the Bible. The other Jesus that I've seen in the past month, or people proclaiming, is the tyrannical Jesus. The tyrannical King Jesus who says, it is my way or the highway. No matter what you want, you cannot do anything. It's all me. It's all what I say, and it's all these things, that, these outdated, uh, you know, antiquated things that are here. And a tyrant's rule. And guess what? We Americans do not like a tyrant rule. In fact, didn't we, didn't we fight an entire empire over 250 years ago to get away from that? But yet here sits the world painting a picture of Jesus in that very same way, who says you have no rights, no freedoms, no choice in the matter anymore, in a very negative light. That's not Jesus. He's found in the joyful medium of all of that. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but I rise up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the Jesus we have to see, the true, the righteous, the living Jesus. Not antiquated, not out of date, not one who sits and frets about our social justice and current cultures and things of the time. 
He's Jesus who cares about truth and righteousness and what the Father wants. That's the Jesus I need to be teaching and preaching and sharing with the world. I have to see and know Jesus for who he really is. Secondly, I must submit to the one and only one who has truly seen God. Think about any time that man has tried to see God. Moses asked, can I see, can I see you? And the Lord says, no, you can't, but I will put you in a crevice and protect you so you can see the, my backside. So you see the back of me, and Moses was a very changed individual that people feared. Or think about Isaiah when he became in a dream in the presence of the Lord. He couldn't even lift up his eyes to him. He fell on his face and was afraid for his life because I am in the presence of God. There is but one who has ever truly seen and truly knows God, and that is our Lord Jesus. And he wants to share that with you. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. If the one, the only one who has seen God says the only way to get to him and know him is through me, I should be doing everything I can to get in line with him and follow and say, show me, teach me, guide me, live in me, make me like you so I can see God, so I can see and be with the one who cares so much about me that he sent you to die for me. I have to submit to the one who has truly seen God. And lastly, I must continue to walk in a manner that has been left for me. I have to walk in a manner that has been left for me. And this is the great challenge, I think, of this beatitude. Because it's not a one-time thing of saying, blessed is the pure at the one time in their life and heart, and they're going to see God. Great, awesome, you're done. It is a walking journey. All of Beatitudes are a walking journey of building up who I am needing to be, who God is expecting me to be. Expecting me to learn and become pure in heart. Because He wants to see me as much as I want to see Him. And I can only do that by continuing to walk in a manner, the manner that has been left for me. And to do it boldly. And do it proudly, because it's not popular to be a true Christian right now. I've felt it. I've seen it, and I figure all of you have done the same. You see it in the media. You hear it in the news. It's even gotten down to the comic books, that Christians and those who stand for God are the enemy. And it sure takes a very bold and strong person to stand forth and say, I am a Christian, no matter what, because, because I value my kingdom citizenship. Because I want to walk with you, because I want to see and know God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this time, for this place, for these people 
who have come together to, to want to study a portion of your word, who want to come this morning using our most valuable resource of time, spending that focused on you and praising you, glorifying you, and asking questions, how do I know and see you? Father, we know it's not an easy thing to do and to see. It is a challenge. It's an ever-striving goal. Father, we ask that you help us on that path. Keep developing us into Christians who are pure in heart. Give us the chance in the world to show who we are, to show others why they should want to be known as your children and to see you. Help us to ever excel still more in these things. And thank you for giving us the true and ultimate key to unlocking that barrier that was to truly know and see you. Thank you for giving us your son. We say all that in his name. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is an ever-growing struggle in life and a journey that should not be taken lightly, but is one that should be taken joyfully, gladly, and done together. And unity is one. We offer this chance this morning, if anybody needs to make that journey the first step down onto that path, the opportunity is now. Or maybe you've gotten off the path and you need to get back on it and you'd want to do it with fervor. I promise you, there's, there's people here, they will love you, they will do all they can to get you back on that path and help remind you and show all of us in every single way what it looks like to be pure in heart because we all want to see God. If you need to make advantage of that opportunity now, we give you a chance as we stand. And as we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.